0: All right, so here we go. This is the last lesson for this unit. We'll start our new unit next week, which will be the rest of John. So we'll start in John chapter 12 and go through, uh, what is it, 21, I think, something like that. Um, So this is session 12, I Am the Resurrection. So it is Easter Sunday, but this isn't going to be Jesus' resurrection. Um, Jesus is sovereign over all creation. We'll be in John chapter 11, verses uh, 32 through 46, so you can go ahead and, and flip there. Last week was interesting as we were doing chapter 10, which was the whole lesson on Jesus being the good shepherd, and then Chris preached on chapter 11, and now I'm back in chapter 11. I won't. We won't even really talk about where where Chris was last week in chapter 11. We're going to do a different part of chapter 11 um, as we do it. This is the story of... Anybody? Nobody's opened their Bibles. Huh? I heard it. Bruce, say it again. Lazarus, Lazarus. Lazarus. yes. Yes. (laughs) We're going to be talking about Lazarus today. Now... The interesting thing about Lazarus is he died, right? Yes. One of the things that um, most religions have in common is um, what they do with the dead. In most religions, when somebody dies, you pray for them or some such. Uh, Joe, you've been to Hong Kong, China. What do they do for the dead there? Uh, you buy held banknotes and burn them so that they have money in the underworld. You buy paper cars and houses. They have temples. Yeah. Late incense. So you sacrifice real stuff to the dead so that they have stuff in the afterlife. That's interesting. Mormonism. What do they do for the dead? Anybody know? They baptize them by proxy if they haven't been baptized. Yeah, they right. baptize them by proxy for the dead. So that they can potentially get into heaven. Catholics! What do Catholics do? Burn a candle. They they light candles, they pay to have mass said and <coughs> all sorts of stuff so that when they can get out of purgatory to go, really, why is evangelicals, what do we do for the dead? We gather and remember them. Yeah, that's Their at the life. funeral. Yeah. Maybe occasionally after the fact, but what do, what ritual do we go through for the dead? We don't. We don't, we, don't. we, we have no, what was the last time any of you went to the cemetery to visit somebody? 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, we, we, most evangelicals that I know, they, we, we go to the cemetery, we bury the person, and the next time we go to the cemetery is to bury the next person. Mm-hmm. Most other people, even non-religious, go... Well, sometimes every day, but fairly on a regular basis, usually the anniversary or when they have some life. You see it in the movies all the time. Dude's wife dies. He's got a big big life decision. What does he do? He goes to the cemetery to talk to his dead wife. Right? I mean, that's the way the world views it. In Madagascar, there is a day every year they bring the bones out of their ancestors and clean them and then put them back. Spring cleaning. Yeah. I uh, get uh, yeah. I, I, I you. But we as evangelicals, we don't even pray for the dead, do we? And here's Lazarus. And Lazarus is going to be dead. We honor the dead, don't we? Mm-hmm. But we don't see the need to do anything. There's nothing to do for the dead, is there? Think of how much money we (laughs) saved. Well, this morning we're going to look at Lazarus. And he's going to die. As we come to this, we're going to start in John chapter 11, verses 32 through 37. This is the halfway through the story. Jesus has been across the River Jordan in what would be modern-day Jordan. Um, Back in Jesus' day, it was still part of Israel. It was still part of uh, that province. He's hiding. Remember? We got to the end of last week, and they wanted to what? Stone him. Stone him. They wanted to kill him again. And on his way out of the temple, because they're trying to stone him, he stops and heals a blind man. And then he does the whole good shepherd story after that. And uh, some time passes. He, He escapes. He gets out of the clutches of the political leaders. And he goes across. And he's preaching through the Judean area. And he's on the other side of the Jordan. And word comes to Jesus. Lazarus is sick. Now, apparently, Lazarus... Mary and Martha were close friends of Jesus. Jesus often stayed with them. It seems when he was in Jerusalem, they lived on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So you go if you if you can picture that the Mount of Olives. You stand on the top of it. You're looking at the temple. I've showed you pictures of me standing on the top of Mount of Olives, looking at where the temple mount used to be. Go down the the eastern side, and that's where. Lazarus and Martha and Mary lived. It's a nice mm, two mile walk, brisk in the morning. They lived in a town called Bethany, which means house of dates, which is interesting. It was probably the large date farm on that side of the mountain. Now, I don't know who Mary, Martha and, and Lazarus is. We know nothing about them really. We don't know if he was the property owner and maybe owned the large date farm that was over there. Could have been. They could have been tenant workers or, or any such thing. But we don't, know, we don't know anything about them except Jesus and how he felt about them, which we'll see here in a minute. We know that Mary and Martha loved Jesus We know that they served when he would come and stay. We know that Mary liked to sit at his feet and listen to his words. And so we come to this passage, John chapter 11, 32 through 37. Somebody go ahead and read this for us. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come... With her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? All right. Thanks. Martha had already been to see Jesus. Word had come to her Mourning was a large community event. And Martha found out Jesus was on his way. He's outside the village of Bethany, and she runs to see him. And he comforts her slightly. And she goes back, because he wants to know where Mary is. She comes back and whispers in Mary's ear that, that Jesus has come. She jumps up and runs out. Now, when mourning takes place, not just the community people professional mourners would come that's so odd isn't it professional but these are people that would come and wail and mourn and comfort and offer condolences and they actually now we as italians we tend to do big meals with people as they just constantly roll through the house to bring condolences you're just constantly eating and all that Well, the Jews do the same thing, except that the the people that are mourning don't do anything. Other people come and work, serve serve at the house in shifts to take care of that. And you just sit. You're actually not supposed to move uh, when somebody dies and it's in your family. The mourners are supposed to not move for at least seven days. I can't imagine sitting for seven days. That would drive me crazy. But that's what they did. And so Mary's sitting, and all of a sudden, she jumps up. And so everybody in the house goes, she's going to wail at the grave. We can't let her do it by herself. And so they all take off. So there's this whole troop going through town, and they think she's going to the grave. But she doesn't. She goes outside of town, and there's Jesus. And um, she's upset. She's not mad at Jesus. But her feeling, which is reflected by those who were with her, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Now, if we go back, and we didn't read it, but if we go back to the beginning of the chapter, Jesus hears that Lazarus is dead, and what does he tell the disciples? Who's got their Bible? Who's looking at it? What does Jesus tell the disciples about this sickness that Lazarus has it was for the glory of God it's for the glory of God this is four days or more well it's been more than four days before this event Jesus already knows there's already a plan this is the same language that we find with the <coughs> guy who was blind from birth who sinned him or his parents Jesus said neither it's for the glory of God same thing here the, the, This Lazarus is sick for the glory of God wow now that puts a different spin on things doesn't it mm-hmm. think about it our world don't no pain no suffering we want to try and figure out how to get out of every sickness and illness and all that Here's Lazarus, a man that Jesus loves and cares for, his sisters he loves, he cares for. This is for the glory of God. Martha's already come, sobbing in front of him. Now here's Mary, also weeping. Now what is his response? What's Jesus' response? Isaiah? saying? Well that Where did you where did you put him? Where, no, not yet. Uh, wet, uh, uh. He's deeply moved. Okay. That's a horrible translation. That's an absolutely horrible translation of what is actually there. And I I've read I've read extensively this week because I was like, really? Um We'll come to the part about Jesus weeping in a moment, because we have to have the context, which is this deeply moved. He wasn't; he was deeply moved. But when we say deeply moved, what do we tend to think? Sad. Sad. I cried. Cried. He is. He's going to weep. Yeah. But that's not what the Greek word here means. The Greek word that is deeply moved, sad, upset, weeping, is the word that John uses for Mary. When it says that Mary was doing this, John doesn't use the same word. He uses a different word when Jesus does it. And that word, the deeply moved, is in anger. Jesus is upset, but he's not crying. It isn't sadness. He's moved to anger. Now the question is what's he angry at? Death. Death. Yeah, right off the bat. <laughs> You've heard this before somewhere. Yeah, I have notes in here about being angry and stuff too, so. Jesus <laughs> is angry with sin and death. Because of what it is doing to the people he loves. And so he weeps for them. Because he knows what's going on. In the Tree of Life Bible, it says, he was deeply troubled in spirit and himself agitated. Yeah, agitated isn't even strong enough. We've put these English words that don't cover it. Jesus is mad and angered at death because we brought it upon ourselves. This is what he's moved by. He sees and understands and feels the human feelings of the tragedy of what sin brought into the world and this upsets him. And his friend is dying. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead. Jesus knew that more than four days ago. He's not upset that Lazarus is dead. He's not upset over the whole fact that he didn't make it in time. He could have made it in time. He could have healed Lazarus from wherever he was. We've seen that earlier. But this is for the glory of God. He's upset because of what the people he loves have to go through. Because of what they chose back in the Garden of Eden. This is what is moving him. This is where he is. Because he knows what's coming next. We're just weeks away from Easter. The crucifixion. We're about a week, maybe two, three weeks out. He knows what's coming. He's going to defeat death. He's going to defeat sin. And now he's seeing and feeling, because remember, he's fully human. He's feeling what that implies, what the fall did. And he's mad at it. So here we are. Jesus wept. The sadness, it's its a tragic loss. His anger is at the loss of the eternal life that God offered us in the garden, and we chose the other eternal death. He understands. He understood his God, but when he became man, he understood what the loss of our relationship with God entailed as he has to deal with the loss of Lazarus, and for the people that he loves, Mary and Martha. He is saddened by it, and we see it in his tears as he weeps in the shortest verse. And because sin and death leads to this, he knows that it needs to be defeated. He knows where he comes. He knows why he's here, but it's on a different level. We see he gains an understanding of the human condition from a human perspective. Which, as God, he could not do. Warren Wiersbe um, says, Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' sickness or even healed it from where he was, but he chose not to. He saw in this sickness an opportunity to glorify the Father. It is not important that we Christians are comfortable, but it is important that we glorify God <coughs> in all we do. We face a lot of sickness. We face death. We as evangelicals don't view death the same way the rest of the world does, do we? The problem is is though we do view sickness the way the rest of the world does. We, we haven't begun to understand That all sickness isn't bad. That the glory of the Lord can show in it. And it may be through our miraculous healing. It may be through the ultimate failure. Death is a doorway for God to work in this world. Martyrs, we see that as a good thing. We don't like it, but we get it. But what about the average little old lady who just passes away of old age? That's a good thing for God's economy. Things happen. We have no idea how all that plays out in people's minds, in their conversations, in their regular life. Now, we see Jesus' response to Mary And he wants to know where where they've lain Lazarus. Take me there, like he doesn't know. (laughs) But he knows, and he asks, and they go off. I think it's interesting that there is a crowd. And this crowd is made up of Jews from Jerusalem. They've come to mourn with this family. It appears that Lazarus was well-to-do, and that he was well-known and well-respected. We'll see when we get to the end of the story what happens, which will indicate, give us even more indication of how well-known and well-respected Lazarus was. But my guess is, is that he was the property owner of the, the farms in Bethany. Um, I don't think he was just some local schlup that uh, was just eking out a living. I think he was a lot more than that. He's somebody of importance. He's somebody of renown and respect in the Jerusalem community. He's not a rabbi. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. And he's probably of the merchant class. He's of the property holder class. He appears to be somebody of consequence. And so there's a variety of people that have come to bear the grievance, the grieving with the two sisters. Apparently he was unmarried too. So we come to uh, our next part of the passage. Any questions before we move on? All right. I want to get some seats. John chapter 11, verses 38 through 40. And Jesus. Uh, said, to her, "Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God?" I love this part of the story. They get to the tomb and everybody thinks Jesus is just going to break down, weep, you know, mourn, wail. I mean, that's that was traditional. That's what you did. You know, you show great spasms of emotion in front of the tomb of somebody you loved and cared for. No, not Jesus. He gets there, take away the stone. Martha is upset with this. Which would be normal, right? She's buried her brother. I mean, how would you like to have to face that again? This is her beloved brother. She doesn't want to look at his half decaying corpse. And then have to seal the tomb again. I mean, they don't, at least, uh, funerals that I've been to, I don't remember them lowering the, the coffin down and throwing the dirt in while we were there. Um, but you can imagine if you had to stand there go through that, that they fill the hole in while you're waiting and then tell you in a couple of days you come back and they dig it up and we got to do it all over again. That, that would be pretty harsh. But so she's, she's upset at this. And now the whole state thing. Well, there, there's a reason. The fourth day has importance in the Jewish world. So you may not, this may be something you didn't know. The fourth day has significance in Jewish belief um, because the soul of the departed was believed to stay near the body of the dead person for three days in hopes that it might resuscitate. When it saw the change in color of the face that takes place by the third day, it departs permanently. And the person was then well and truly dead. That Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days indicated there was no hope of resuscitation. Thus highlighting the greatness of Jesus' miracle that he was about to perform. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said that we're going to wait. Remember, if we go back to the beginning of the chapter, he doesn't depart. He decides that he needs to wait before he goes to Bethany. Because he wanted to make sure that he showed up when there was no doubt that Lazarus was dead. Nobody's going to believe anything else. It's the fourth day. The Spirit's not there. He's truly dead in the Jewish mind. That's significant, because of what's going to happen. So hold that in the back of your minds. Let's look at this. There we go. He tells Martha, just believe. Her response, it's four days dead. Oh, the stink. Putrefaction has set in. They don't need a coroner or forensic uh, whatever to come in. This guy is dead. They know. Jesus says, yes, yes, I know. Move the stone. Move the stone, Martha. Why? To see the glory of God. Requires some obedience. She could have said no. She could have denied it. But she believes and trusts. She puts her faith in Jesus. Okay. Okay, I know that if you would have been here, you would have healed Lazarus and he'd be alive. She knew of his other miracles. He had healed or raised from the dead others back up in Galilee. But they were only immediately dead. I mean, there was the whole story of the, the uh, boy from Nain. He's dead. They're on the way to bury him. it's a funeral procession and Jesus reaches up and touches him and he's and he comes back to life but he was newly dead because they have to bury their dead within 24 hours they can't leave him out the huh yeah there's the daughter he kicks everybody out of the house and heals her and raises her from the dead but this is four days dead those were just recently dead that, that, that can happen because you remember Elijah raised people from the dead. That that's a possibility, but they were newly dead. This is dead dead. This is four days dead. Martha, you're gonna see the glory of God in a minute. Comment, question. Alright. So we come to John chapter 11, 41 through 46. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him, and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. All right. We come to this, and uh, we've got several questions we have to ask and look at, because the way this unwraps is important. And I think we don't understand the importance of it. Charlatans, false messiahs were all over the place at the time of Christ, just before him. There were lots of them. People claiming to be the messiah, claiming to be prophets, Claiming to be all sorts of things. Let's face it, people were skeptical, especially in Jerusalem, about anybody claiming to be a Messiah. They'd seen one come and go, and the Romans killed them, and or the you know, they just disappeared with all the money. We live in a world like that today, don't we? Mm-hmm. We think everybody's a charlatan. We've got illusionists. We've got magicians who do conjuring tricks of all sorts. We know it's fake. It's fun to watch, but we know it's fake. We know we're having the wool pulled over our eyes. We just don't know how. These were metropolitan people. They lived just outside Jerusalem. They lived in the suburbs of Jerusalem. They're sophisticated. They're smart. They're savvy. So Jesus doesn't, doesn't play the game. Who opens the tomb? Lazarus? No. Yeah. All those, all those guys from Jerusalem that came over to be with uh, Mary and Martha, the savvy, sophisticated onlookers from Jerusalem. You guys, get over there and open that tomb for me. Jesus doesn't do it himself. He does that so that nobody can say anything. He didn't play with the tomb. No magic potions. None of that. He wasn't even standing next to it. Open the tomb. He prays. Why does he pray? For their sake. Huh? For their sake. For their sake. He doesn't say anything spectacular, does he? (laughs) He actually includes that in his prayer. Father, I pray for their sakes. So there's no, no secret, undercut magic going on here, is there? Straightforward prayer. Now here's the thing. It says that in a loud voice, and we'll talk about that in a minute, we have to understand that in the ancient world, the, Isra- the Israelites were used to dealing with sorcerers and necromancers And people like that. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 18 and 19. Or chapter 8 verses 18 and 19. um, We get an idea of how this works. So a loved one died, passed over. You go to a medium or you go to a necromancer and all that. And Isaiah records how this works for us. Behold, I am the children whom the Lord has given me are signs Importance um, in Israel for the Lord of Hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God? Should they not inquire of? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? The idea that they chirp and mutter, they would do these incantations that nobody could hear, nobody could understand. They were made up languages. They were just noises and all that. So the people wouldn't know what was being said and all that. There was secrecy that surrounded these people that you would go to. And Isaiah makes it clear that why would you go to these people? You have no idea what they're doing or saying. Why would you inquire of the dead for the living? Why wouldn't you go to the living God? Because that's what they were doing. They were ignoring God. They wouldn't go talk to God. Jesus here in a very loud, very clear voice in a language that everybody standing there is talking about. Now, here's what's really interesting. He's not whispering it. It's not a mumble. He wants everybody to hear what he says. He says it loudly. Now, the question is, is why... Does he say, Lazarus, come out loudly? Well, there are several. Scholars have been arguing about this for a long time. And for some reason, it printed out in yellow. So I'm having a hard time reading oh, <laughs> But um, surely, it wasn't because, Wow, this is really hard. Often, it wasn't because of, read it off the computer? no, because it's in the notes. Oh, look at that. I forget that the notes are there. That's better hand. Uh, All right, you're going to have to bear with me. There we go. Um, Surely it wasn't because otherwise he could not reach the dead man with his voice. Or just as certainly it wasn't because extra powerful voice of command was needed to overcome a very strong enemy of death. These are all things that people have said and why he called in a loud voice. Um, Equally unsatisfactory is the explanation given by some that Jesus was very loud to indicate the great amount of power that he expended to raise Lazarus. But the natural and best way to understand why Jesus calls out is Here, death must take orders from him in whom lives the fullness of the deity. Death must give up its prey at his command. This is who Jesus is. You wanted proof of who I am. Remember last week? He says, I'm the good shepherd. I am the father of one. And they all get upset and they want to stone Him. How dare you? Okay. Here we go, chapter 11. Let me prove it to you. John has been trying to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, here you go. Even death obeys him. We've seen demons and evil spirits. We've seen sickness. We've seen all sorts of things that have to respond to him. But here, in this loud voice, Jesus commands Lazarus to come forth, and death can't even hold it. Which really begs the question of why today had to happen, right? They, they crucified Christ. How in the world did they think they were going to keep him in a grave when he raised others? Lazarus returns. Lazarus just doesn't return. We see that non-followers of Jesus move the stone away. These people who didn't believe, they're not the disciples. They're not in on the trick. These aren't the the assistants on stage that are distracting you. Don't look over here so that you can perform this act over there. No, no. He gets the audience to participate so that nobody can say that it was something. He then prays an unneeded prayer. He even mentions it. I don't need to pray. I'm praying so that that everybody listening will know. I mean, just how outrageous this scene is. Here are the two women. They've lost their brother. They're in deep sorrow, crying, wailing, and Jesus is like, yeah, I'm praying, God, but I don't need to pray. You know, I mean, it's, anybody paying attention to this, this is getting to be quite ridiculous. I don't know. I don't, I don't, Wailing, unhappy sight. And here's Jesus. But remember, he's he's angry at death. He's angry at sin at this moment. And then we hear, and I'm going back to last week, the call of the shepherd. Remember that? When Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow. Here's the sheep, Lazarus voice of Jesus come out and he obeys the sheep hear my voice and they obey that's obedience that's what we're seeing here He's tying it, John's tying it all together for us can you see that he has a, a point and he's winding this up here I am I'm the good shepherd I care about the sheep and all of this and Jesus shows up calls out the sheep the sheep comes forward and then we see how it ends Tattletales turn tail. The tattletales run to the Pharisees. Guess what Jesus did? You're not going to believe what Jesus did. Oh my, what are we going to do about it? Not, oh, it's amazing. The Messiah has come and he has power over life and death. No, no, no. There's a problem. Jesus has got too much power. <laughs> Which is really what the world today has, right? That, that's the problem with Christianity. God has too much power. He can tell me how to behave. He can tell me how to act. He can tell me that what I'm thinking is sinful and wrong. What gives him the right? That, that's, that's what it is, isn't it? It's the same thing. It hasn't changed. We're in the same place that these tattletales were back then. Let me uh, start wandering through uh, the graphic. Signs proving Jesus is the Son of God. we are up to chapter 11 and we're ending this unit and this is uh, this whole unit has been the presentation of Christ as the Son of God. John has been trying to show us Jesus really is. He started out in chapter 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then we get to and the word came and dwelt among us. Well, that's great. You can say that all you want. Now prove it, John. John says, "Okay. Let me show you some signs." And so we go through the first 11 chapters. In chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, Jesus changes water to wine. Here you go. I have power and authority over matter. That's water. No, it's not. It's wine. I said so. Period. Okay. Sure. Great. Chapter 4, verses uh, uh, 43 through 54. He heals the official's son. Okay. He can heal people. Great. That's good. Still doesn't make you God. All right? Then he heals the invalid in chapter 5, verses 1 to 15 in Bethsaida. Remember that story? And he does it on the Sabbath. Because I'm in charge of the Sabbath. I'll decide. Which starts the whole thing. Now they're pretty impressed. They're starting to be impressed chapter 6 verses 1 to 15 he feeds 5,000 with 5 loaves and 2 fishes not to be undone a little a a few months later he does it again with 4,000 people it's not a one time deal chapter 6 verses 16 through 21 he walks on water and he allows Peter to walk on water I'm in charge of the water I say whether water drowns people or not Mm -hmm mm-hmm John's feeling pretty proud of himself. Then we come to chapter 9, and we get the healing of the blind man. He was born blind. Nobody has ever healed a blind man from birth. Uh, But there's Jesus. Yep. A little mud. On the Sabbath, he made mud. Ooh, that's a bad (laughs) thing. But he makes mud and heals the blind man. (laughs) Now they're impressed, and now they're concerned these religious leaders. The world is not sure what they're dealing with at that point, with the healing of the blind man. And Jesus puts the nail in the coffin, so to speak. As we come to chapter 11, verses 1 to 44, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He's not just sort of dead. He's 100% all bona fide dead because it's more than four days this guy's been buried. And he comes out and he's still wrapped in the linens that they put him in. It's not like they found him crumpled at the door and had gotten out of his windings and all that. No, he's like, you know, mummy coming out, like, you know, coming out. And, they, and Jesus has to tell him, hey, go over there and unbind him. Let him loose. I mean, really? Uh, and just so you know, the the it's not like the mummies you see, like the Egyptians did. They would take a sheet and fold it in half, put the body in there, and then they'd tie it with the windings so that he couldn't get out. He had to be let out. This is what's taking place. Signs to prove that he's the son of God. We get to the verses after what we just read. And we see the conversations of the Pharisees. I don't know how John came by them. My guess would be that it's the Sanhedrin in session. We know that uh, Nicodemus was a follower, a secret follower of Jesus. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin. My guess is, is that John talked with him at some point in time and found out what happened afterwards. Because this is a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and they begin discussing what are we going to do about Jesus. As with so many other signs that Jesus did, the onlookers immediately are divided into two camps. Here too, in Bethany, he compels some to believe and others to file a report with members of the Sanhedrin, who then determine Jesus's fate. The deliberations of the Sanhedrin now call to a formal meeting about Jesus typify the drift of Jewish leadership and their reaction to Christ ever since chapter 9. Chapter 9. The healing of the blind man. The camp becomes unified. There's a problem. There's an issue. Jesus' signs seem compelling, but the practical implications of this are more than they can bear. It's not that they don't know. They all agree. This is the Messiah. This is somebody of importance from God. But the implications of our practical lives, we're not going to be in power anymore. The Romans aren't going to put up with it. They're going to come in. They're going to upset the balance that we have so delicately been doing, and we will lose prestige, money, and power. We cannot allow that. It's not that they don't know who Jesus is. It's that they refuse to accept him and put their faith and trust in him. They'd rather put their faith and trust in themselves, which is the epitome of sin, isn't it? Self-centeredness. I know better how to deal with the Romans than Jesus does. Yeah, he's got power. Yeah, God's saying, but what does God know about the politics here in Jerusalem? Really? (laughs) Really?
1: Right? That,
0: that's the mindset. I think a lot of Christians today are stuck in this mindset. Great, Jesus is in charge and all that, but he doesn't understand the politics here in America. I, we need to take care of this ourselves. We need it to work our way because we know what's best, right? Right? Isn't that what's going on? That's what we've got. We've got Christians who are backing this thing or that thing that's evil. Well, if we just let them have that, then we know that we can get this stuff over here. They're doing the same thing that these guys did. Look. Look at their questions. I mean, if we move on to, to down through verses 48 and all the like, What if the masses start to follow him? Oh, no. Right. They're not following us anymore. We're not important. They're following Jesus. Oh, my. Right. Would it not upset the fragile political equilibrium that we have with Rome? Oh, we, we, we've got it. We've got the suburbs going. And if we, if we let these fanaticals go in and change the way the urban areas are and all this, there's going to be upheaval and we're going to lose our nice comfy little areas, right? So we're not going to love those people in the inner city and, and all that. We just keep them there. It don't help. Then the question, would Caesar tolerate a Messiah? (laughs) Are those in power going to tolerate somebody else telling them what to do? (coughs) Not a chance. But do they have a choice? Could they even stand up to him? I think John answers that question for us when he writes Revelation. He shows what the world had. Here's Caesar and all his armies. And the blood was to the depths of the bridles of the horses as he slaughtered them all. I don't think they're a problem. The Sanhedrin must choose either to follow the logic of Jesus' truth. Here's the logic. Regardless of the cost, or retreat into the safety of their own nicely controlled religion. I know what I'm doing, and I know what's good, and I'm comfortable with it, so we're just going to keep everything like this. See, that's the whole voice of legalism. And, and you plan it all out, you work it all, and yeah. Caiaphas, we see, chooses the latter that Jesus must die in order to save Israel's precarious freedoms. But John takes this as the prophecy, which the high priest himself even misunderstands. Of course, Jesus must die for the sake of the Jewish nation and all the Gentiles. And the Sanhedrin is never going to understand this. This is what it's all about. This is where it's all been going as we've been wandering our way through John. He either is who he claims he is, or he's not important at all. The Sanhedrin knew that he was who he said he was, but they couldn't submit. He's either in control of this world and everything in it and everything that's going on is under his authority which means that when bad people come to power it's because he's in charge. It's because he's ordained it. We just have to deal. We have to do what we've been told. We have to live. We have to hear the voice of the shepherd and follow. Or we reject it all and say I know better. And in the ultimate expression of self-centeredness, take control. Or at least pretend to take control because we really aren't in control. (laughs) Comment, question? All right. A couple of things then to take with us. We'll get you out nice and early. First, Jesus understands the hurts of humanity. I don't know how bad it can get for you, but Jesus understands. He also understands its cause, its root, and that angers him. Because it was all possible to not have happened, but for our own choices. But he understands. Then we demonstrate our faith through obedience to the contrary of our feelings. Martha did not want that grave opened. She didn't want to have to face her dead brother. She didn't want to have to look upon his decaying corpse. She didn't want to smell that offensive smell of death. But if you want to see the glory of God... Martha, open the the stone. If you want to see God's glory revealed, you have to obey, regardless of how ridiculous it is. Move to this place. Take this job. Go to this country. We're all like, no, that's stupid. Why would I do that? Lord, don't you see the way the world is going? How can it? We are sheep and if he is our shepherd, we hear his voice and we obey. We demonstrate our faith through obedience, contrary to our feelings. We know that our feelings often don't line up because we're human and we can't understand and we can't see. That's what obedience is when we do it even though we don't understand because we know He's in charge. We know who he is in comparison to us, in relation to us. And then lastly, as we go this week, we can approach God knowing that he hears us. Jesus heard Mary and Martha when he was asked to come and save Lazarus from death. He heard, he knew, because we have the early part of that story. He told his disciples so that they would know later on we're not going yet because this is going to be for the glory of God. And wow, what a miracle. Raising a guy more than four days dead from death. We want to see the glory of God. We sing about it all the time. We're going to probably sing about it this morning about the glory of God. If you want to see it, we've got to obey. we got to follow. We've got to put ourselves aside. And that includes... Our emotions, our pride, and in humility, we say, yes, Lord, and follow. And do as we're told. And he shows up and always does something amazing. It may not be the amazing thing we wanted, but it will be amazing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for rising again. We thank you for being willing to come and die so that you could rise again. We thank you that you were willing to come and suffer as a human person, a human being on this earth in every stage of life. And then die and rise again. So that we would know that you're the shepherd. And that we could hear your voice and follow and know you. Lord, help us to remember that in our trying times. When it is emotionally challenging and frustrating and everything else. Lord, let us look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.